Uh, kia ora everyone, it is uh, lovely to be here. Let me open in prayer as we open up God's word this morning. Triune God, we come here aware that um, you fill all places before we step foot in them. Well, we thank you there's nowhere we can go to flee from your presence, and that's an encouragement. Um, but now in this time, as we open up your word, we pray that the living word himself will be present with us um, through the Spirit. And um, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do in our lives whatever it is you want to do. Um, as Jeremiah said, you are the potter, we are the clay. Um, we pray that you'll be glorified through uh, our time together this morning and pray this in the name of our crucified and resurrected King Jesus. Amen. Now, a uh, question for anyone, uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm not a car nut at all. But does anyone know what type of car this is? That's not rhetorical as well, because that would be a very bad rhetorical question. Benjamin Gardner, give Benjamin Gardner a round of applause, please. Uh, this here is a Holden Barina, and this here is the car that Richard Goodwin used to drive. Not this actual one, sorry, this is just when I googled Holden Barina and prayed that this actually was, Google was correct. So um, my dad taught me how to drive a car, but all of our cars were automatics, and I wanted to learn to drive in a manual, and so Richard kindly offered to help. And so I can still remember sitting out on rural Thornton Road, uh, which has now all been developed, sitting there and Richard explaining to me the relationship between the clutch and the accelerator. And he, he said, uh, it's like yin and yang. It's like yin and yang. You need both. You've got to balance it. And I quickly learned that if I overemphasized the clutch and forgot about the accelerator, I'd experience a beautiful shuddering stall. But if I emphasized the accelerator and forgot the clutch, I'd make that Holden Barina sing like a sewing, sewing machine on steroids. <laughs> so I, I had to learn how to live with both of these and how to get this balance right. I had to be thinking about both of them and find that sweet spot where clutch and accelerator were in tandem. And there's balances and tensions like this. We talk about this in life all the time. We talk about work-life balance. Uh, you know in relationships you might have family-friend balance. Uh, maybe in finances there's spending and saving balance. And if we tend to one of the extremes in these, uh, focusing on work without life, focusing on friends without family, or spending without saving, it leads to trouble. When it comes to the gospel, I would argue there's many, many, many beautiful truths in there. But one that we have to learn to hold together at the same time is this. One is that the gospel is good news for individuals. We're going to talk about that today. But at the same time, the gospel, whilst being the hope, the only hope to save people from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light, the gospel is also good news for the world. The gospel speaks to injustice, to care for creation, to caring for the poor and the lonely. Together, when these two are held together, this is beautiful. But we can tend to focus on one extreme without the other, and it can lead to a bit of trouble. Uh, there was a famous evangelist in the 90s who said, God didn't send me to clean the fishbowl, he sent me to fish. So for this man, he was saying, oh, it's all about individual saving, but anything around injustice or creation care, that's just a waste of time. On the other side, uh, there was a very famous liberal theologian who said Jesus' purpose was what he was doing as a healer, a wisdom teacher, a social prophet, and a movement initiator. His death was just the consequence of what he was doing, not the purpose. You can see for this person, he's all focused on the good news for the world, but not about Jesus' saving power for individuals. 
So I think individually, if we overemphasize one of these, it can lead to trouble. It can lead to disaster. It can lead to Christians who will gladly share their faith with people, but will do nothing to help people when they're hurting. Or alternatively, and probably this is what we see more and more, is people, Christians who are happy to go and care for people and get involved with the world, but never really want to talk about Jesus. But when these two come together, can you see how this is fire? <laughs> can you see how this is just amazing? See, the gospel is what the world needs, and the gospel is what your neighbor needs. The gospel is what the world needs, but the gospel is also what your neighbor needs. You might be sitting, because in this show and tell series where we're talking about the gospel, you might be sitting there going, I don't even really know, like, what is this gospel you're talking about? We don't talk about this much. And, and I would argue the gospel, it's simple, and we've been singing it uh, so beautifully this morning, is that Jesus took our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. That is the good news. Jesus took your sin and the world's sin and offers us his righteousness. In the early church, only about 20 years after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven, people, as they came into these little churches, would be like, what is this gospel? What is this good news? And so there was this group of this church in Corinth who were asking this question, and so Paul wrote to them, and we have this in the Bible, his response, where he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So here's Paul saying, I'm going to explain this gospel to you as simply as possible. Here we go. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, but some have fallen asleep. That means they've passed away, not that they're having a little nap at the time. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And I think Paul makes some really simple points here that help us understand this. First of all, the gospel is a historical event that happened. Christ died and Christ rose again and heaps of people saw him. The good news about Jesus is not like you believing in the tooth fairy or Santa. If there's kids here, put your hands over their ears. <laughs> but you know when you believed in the tooth fairy or in Santa, right? He existed. But then the moment when you realize he doesn't really... He stopped to exist. Believing in Jesus is not like that. Jesus' existence does not depend on your belief. Jesus died on the cross and Jesus rose again. The Bible explains it, and I think we're not going to go into it today. History pretty clearly shows that this happened. It's not just a nice little idea. It's a real historical event. If we were to find Jesus Christ's body lying in a tomb, Christianity would be false. But we won't because he is risen. But second of all, you'll notice here the word it uses is Christ. Often we think Christ was just Jesus' last name, but it, it wasn't, okay? The gospel is not just about one good guy dying and rising. This is about the Christ, which means the anointed one, the one who's chosen by God, the one who was chosen by God the Father to do something special. And it's clear when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus was not just any ordinary human. That creation listens to him. The good news is that Jesus is the Christ, God and man, and he is the one who has died and risen. But finally, you'll notice here that Paul repeats twice, according to the scriptures. 
Paul is saying that the gospel, this message that Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness, this is the climax of history. This is what all parts of the Bible have been talking to. This is since the problem in Genesis 3 of our sin, this is where it's being solved. See, to use this really simple diagram here, um, I believe our God, uh, John describes God as a God of love. And what any love does is it always gives people the choice to respond. If love does not do that, it is not love at all. And so God, we read about when he created the first humans, our parents, um, he gave them the choice. Hey, do you want to follow me and love me and follow my way? And where that will lead to, it will lead to me. And God is life. God is light. God is blessing. God is relationship. God is joy. God is peace, right? That's what it's going to lead to. Or you can choose to not follow me. But if you do not follow me, it's going to lead to a place of no God, right? The Bible often calls that death. Death means separation from all that is good. So if God is light, it's going to lead to a place which is dark. If God is blessing, this is going to lead to a place of curse. If God is peace, this leads to a place of anxiety. If God is relationship, this leads to a place of loneliness. Now, you don't need to be an anthropologist to realize all of us have gone this way, right? Watch the news. <laughs> but also, if you don't believe me, and this is the thing that convinces me that this story is real and sin is a problem, is simply the fact that who here, you don't have to put your hands up if you don't want to, but who here, even in the last month, for example, has sat there and thought, don't do that, don't say that, don't think that, and then gone and done it? Does that not suggest, okay, Benjamin Gardner, <laughs> I want to hear more from Ben, no, but does that not suggest that there's something actually deeply, deeply broken within each of us, right? This is the problem. This is your biggest, biggest problem here. Our politics will not save you. The Greens, National Acts, wherever you sit on the political spectrum, they are not going to save you because you can see from this, the problem is humanity. It needs a solution from outside of us. Then the Gospels tell us that Jesus came. Jesus is God in the flesh, fully God and fully human. He is loved by God, just like we are, but he loves like God because he is God. And his life is stunning. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus here is undoing the works of death. He's feeding people who are hungry. He's opening the eyes of people who are blind. He's raising people to death. In a world of death, he is life. He does not sin. And he chooses the Father's way every way he should go. So he's chosen life the whole time. But as we approach Easter, you know Jesus ends up crucified and dying. The one who is life chooses to give his life. The one who is life chooses death because he is love. See, we're all trapped here in death. So Jesus comes into this place to set us free. But the good news of Easter is it's not just Good Friday, right? <laughs> We have Good Sunday, which celebrates that Jesus is risen. The devil's most powerful weapon, death, can't hold him down. Jesus rises victorious because he is God. Over 500 people saw him. There's multiple reports for us, and it opens the way for us to be set free through faith. This is the gospel, that Jesus can take your sin, rescue from this, you from this kingdom of darkness through believing in him and claiming him as your Lord and Savior. Paul writes about this in another place in one of my favorite verses. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you confess your sins, 
and put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, he, you get his righteousness. It's what Spurgeon called that glorious exchange. He takes your sin, you get his life. That is the good news. Your sin, your rebellion, your shame paid for. Pretty good news, eh? And, and, and what does this mean for the world? What does this mean for the world? We're going to turn to a bit of an obscure verse. You may, might never have, ever have heard of this one. It's John 3.16. So in John 3.16, uh, and it kind of stunned me um, when I was looking at this verse this week. I grew up in this church, and something hit me that I don't know if I'd seen before. <laughs> it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Do you notice what it says here that God loved? It does not say, For God so loved Jeremy. Doesn't say, For God so loved me. Doesn't even say, For God so loved all people. Do you notice that? It says, for God so loved the world, the cosmos. Often we hear this verse and we think this means God loves me, but it's so much bigger than this. God loves the world. God loves the world. This means, yes, that God loves you, but he also loves Cambridge. He loves the Waikato. God loves New Zealand. God loves the people who make up this place, whether Maori, Pakeha, South African, South Korean, South Sudanese, Irish, whatever. God loves you. God loves this land. He loves Mount Mongatoturi, Mongakawa, Lake Tekauru, the parks, our beautiful river flowing through here. God loves the animals, the kiwi, the tui, the cockroach, the ant, the worm. God loves it when his creation is thriving. He loves people coming together and there being babies running around. Tod- well, babies can't run. Babies lying around the place. Toddlers, kids, teenagers, uh, young adults, adults, the elderly. God loves this. And you might be sitting there going, why? Because he made it. Because he made it, God doesn't make his creation and go, I hate it. He loves it. More than that, in in the text here, there's a little word, so, there. This is an emphatic word. It's saying, for God loved the world so much, right? And why did he do this? He did so much that he would send his son. And Jesus, the son of God, is all about this world too. Think about in the Gospels how much of what he does is about restoring the world. He feeds people who are hungry. He heals the blind and the unwell. He reconciles fighting brothers. Jesus could have done miracles like right up in the clouds, I am the Messiah. But he, all of his miracles are about showing his love for the world. Jesus' biggest sermon is all about how to live together well in this world. The Sermon on the Mount is about choosing generosity over greed, seeking to make peace and to bring mercy and to bring, see God's work being done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus lives and preaches a love for this world. What motivates the incarnation is the Father's love for the world. And as we respond to the gospel and seek to love God with all of our hearts, we should also find a love for God's world growing within us. Now, some of you might be thinking, hold up, hold up, hold up. Doesn't John write a later letter, 1 John, where he says, don't love the world? 10 out of 10, you get a Bible badge if you were thinking that. Because in 1 John 2, 15, John writes, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of this Father but of the world. Yes, the Bible does say that. God loves the world, but then we said don't love the world. But here's the thing. God loves the world, but he doesn't like the way it's going. Do you get that? God loves this world and he wants this world healed. You might have a child whom you love deeply, but this child is making decisions in their life that you hate deeply. 
the decisions are not going in a good place. Now, I would suggest that the strength of your love for your child means the strength of your anger or disappointment or hatred at those decision makings increases. Does that mean that you don't love your child? Of course not, right? It is like this. God loves this world because he created it and he wants it healed. Do you? Then <laughs> the gospel speaks to this. Paul writes in Ephesians, and he's talking about at the end of all time, he says he, God's will. This is God's will. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, here it is. (laughs) To bring unity, to bring together, to bring completeness to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. All things, Canberra, culture, businesses, schools, families, animals, nature, all of the world brought into that healing place how it should be under Christ. So the gospel should be motivating us to join in with what God loves. Christians should not be sitting on the sideline when it comes to caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, helping rehabilitate prisoners, opening homes to orphans or to widows. Christians should be caring about the way creation is used, about how other races and other people groups are treated, how the poor might be exploited. To make it practical, when Finlay Park run a kids camp and a kid from a hurting, broken home gets a week of joy and fun, do you see how that is part of God's love for the world? When Food Rescue here helps hungry people in Cambridge get some food, when Christians help a single parent shift house here, um, when they go and spend some time maybe with some elderly people in a rest home who maybe are a bit lonely, when they volunteer for roles that nobody wants, and when they do this because of the good news of Jesus, this is a mirror of God's love for the world. God loves the world and he wants to heal it. This healing only comes because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and will only come in its fullest when Christ returns as king. But loving the world is not polishing the brass on a sinking ship. It's not cleaning the fishbowl. This is not a distraction or a waste of time. It's the work of God. So joining in on God's love for the world is a gospel call. Don't discourage others from it. It's essential. But, so God loves the world and wants it restored, but I only showed you half of John 3, 16. Plot spoiler, there's more. This is the full verse. God, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we've seen that God loves the world and wants the world restored, but God loves your neighbor and wants that one restored. See, this verse, I think, has a little twist in the middle that maybe we sometimes forget. It starts off talking about the world, the cosmos, this massive collective, but then it changes to whoever believes. That, that verb there is talking about individuals. It's a singular. God loves the world. The gospel is for the world, but the gospel change always starts with individuals, and it's an individual response. See, this is a verse here that I think has some pretty horrible news, but some amazing news. The horrible news is in that phrase, shall not perish. So what God's word is saying is, if people don't believe in this good news, they will perish. Right? And that, that word perish literally could be translated as like be destroyed or be utterly, completely ruined. We, we don't like talking about this. But as C.S. Lewis said, if we spend our whole lives saying to God, I don't want you, at the end of our lives, God will say to us, your will be done. If we reject the gift of God's Son and the grace shown to us and say, I'd rather live by myself in my own rebellion, God gives us our wish a place without him. And as we said before, if that place with God is a place of light, this is a place of darkness. 
A place without God is a place without peace, without light, without company, without friendship, without joy. It's everything that God isn't. We call that place hell. God doesn't want anyone to go there. But if we choose to go our own way, I think God gives us our wishes at the end. But there's amazing good news. If the verse stopped there, it would be a horrific verse. But there's amazing good news here as well. We can have eternal life. And this is not just talking about a quantity of life. This is talking about a promised quality of life. We can have a life that is genuinely new, centered on the one who gives us life, the author of life. A life where we're forgiven of our sins and our shame and guilt is taken away. A life where God looks at us, and this blows me away, God, the one who knows all things, chooses to forget my sin. That is amazing because of what Christ has done. All of this centers on that central bit that he gave his one and only son. The son who chose to obey chose to follow the Father's will, chose to give his life as a ransom for many so that I and you and everyone who believes could be set free. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And God invites people to believe it, but the remarkable and slightly crazy thing is he invites people through us. (laughs) The gospel is for the world, but the gospel is for individuals, and the way people hear about it is through you through me. Sometimes that's through us showing it with our love for the world, but I think it always comes to a place where you have to talk about it. Now, in secular New Zealand, is that going to be weird? 100%. We live in a world that doesn't know anything about the Bible, that on the whole doesn't believe in God or absolute truth or anything like this. Going to electives and up training in ways of sharing your faith is a very valuable, valuable skill. I'll toe-talk you that till the cows come home. But I don't think any amount of training will get rid of the awkwardness. It's always going to be a little bit awkward, right? But as I was thinking about this bit, I was sitting there and thinking, the reason, if you're a Christian in this room, the reason you're a Christian is because somebody had that awkward conversation with you. Maybe for me, I was a kid. Uh, Sue Collier uh, led me to Jesus uh, out in the rally hall there. But I've had, I've talked about it up here before, I've had my auntie Kath Badger, I've had Andrew Cook at Boys Rally, I've had uh, John McCullough, these different, different people who have all shared their faith with me, sometimes awkwardly, but it has encouraged me in the gospel. And if you think about this, if you're a Christian, that means there's a chain that stretches all the way back 2,000 years to Jesus of people awkwardly, maybe, sharing their faith, 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 which has led to you. Do you want to be the end of that chain? Do you want it to stop because of awkwardness? In secular New Zealand, this might take longer. I think Jeremy Lind has done an amazing job talking about this. This isn't me saying you have to go up to people every day and give them the full gospel message, right? This might take weeks, months, years. But I think we need to be people who are praying for opportunities to do this. We need to be people who are praying for the courage to have the eyes to see when there's a gospel moment there. And just to be people who are planting those seeds. As one real practical suggestion, I think an incredible uh, opportunity in secular New Zealand is almost everyone is very, very receptive if you, if you offer to pray for them. I don't think I've ever had anyone uh, reject that. So when you find out someone's hurting or someone's going on, just saying, would you mind if I prayed for you? What an incredible way to start those conversations. But this is the gospel. 
Jesus took your sin and gave his righteousness. It's good news for the world, and it's good news for individuals. At the beginning, we talked about the importance of balance here, and what I'm meaning is not just doing a little bit of both. What I'm meaning is things get into trouble if we focus on one without the other. But this church, if we became a church who was deeply passionate about seeing the gospel shared for the world and transformation happening, and at the same time, the gospel shared for individuals, given an opportunity to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus, uh, I think we'd see more and more glimpses of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray, and um, I'll invite the music team to come back up as I'm praying and lead us in our final song. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ, that he took on our sins and gifts us your righteousness. We thank you that if we're in Christ, our sins are taken away. But that's not the finishing line, that's the starting line of this eternal life. And Lord, our heart's desire is to see the world be transformed by the gospel, but also our neighbors to be transformed by the gospel. Give us a courage, uh, a joy. I I pray, Holy Spirit, you just give us a firm conviction that this is true. (laughs) And may the strength of that conviction, the strength of your love, and all of these things motivate us to be people who do show the gospel to the world, but also tell the gospel to our neighbors, we pray. We thank you, Father. We pray for anyone who might be sitting here this morning, uh, maybe who's heard this good news and hearing it for the first time and they're feeling the Spirit um, tickling or convicting their hearts. Um, We pray they might have the courage this morning to um, come forward, um, to sit and talk to, to somebody else from here and to discover the good news of this gospel for themselves. We pray this and ask all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.